Hello and welcome to this episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. It's lovely to have you back. As usual, we'll follow the same format. First there'll be the story, then some conversation about the story, and then the folklore that's contained in it, then some food, folklore and history, and the recipe. The story in this episode is adapted from the golden castle that hung in the air. The English translation of which can be found in Tales from the Fjeld, the link to which is in the show notes. So, gentle listener, are you listening comfortably? Then I'll begin. Once upon a time, there was a poor man who had three sons. When he died, the two eldest wanted to go out into the world to try their luck. But as for the youngest, they wouldn't have him with them at any price. For you, they said, you're fit for nothing but sitting and holding the pine torches, poking in the ashes and blowing on the embers. Well, well, said the ash lad, I'll just have to go by myself. At any rate, I shan't fall out with my own company. So the two set out on the road to their fortune, and when they travelled for some days, they came to a great forest. There they sat down to rest, and were just going to take out sandwiches of bread and cheese and bread and meat from their knapsacks, as they were both tired and hungry. So as they sat there, up came an old hag out of a tuft of grass and begged for a little food. She was so old and weak that her mouth twitched and her head quivered, and she could only walk with a stick. As for bread, she had not had, she said, a morsel in her mouth these past hundred years. But the lads only laughed at her, and ate on, and told her as she'd lived so long with nothing, she might very well carry on without their leftovers. Besides, they had little to share, and nothing to spare. So, when they'd eaten their fill, and could eat no more, and were quite rested, they went on their way again, and sooner or later they came to the king's grange, and there each of them got a place as a serving man. A while after they started from home, Ashlad gathered together the crumbs which his brothers had thrown on one side and put them together in his little package and took with him the old musket which had no bolt. As he thought it might be handy on the way, and he set off. When he'd wandered some days, he too came to the big forest through which his brothers had passed, and as he got tired and hungry, he sat down under a tree so that he might rest and eat. But he had his eyes looking about him for all of that, and as he opened his knapsack, he saw a picture hanging on a tree, and it was painted the portrait of a young maiden or a princess, whom he thought was so lovely he couldn't keep his eyes of her. So he forgot both food and knapsack, and took down the painting and lay and stared at it. Just then, up came an old hag out of a hillock of grass, who hobbled along with her stick, and whose head quivered, and who looked so weak from hunger. She begged for a little food, for she hadn't had a morsel of bread in her mouth for a hundred years, she said. Then it's high time you had a little to live on, Granny, said the lad, and with that he gave her some of the crumbs of sandwiches he had with him. The old hag said no one had ever called her Granny these hundred years, and she would be as a mother to him in her turn. Then she gave him a grey ball of wool, which she had only to roll on before him, and he would come to whatever place he wished. But as for the painting, she said not to bother with that, it'd only get him into trouble. As for the ash lad, he thought it was very kind of her to warn him, but he could not bear to be without the painting, so he took it under his arm and rolled the ball of wool before him, and it was not long before he came to the king's grange, where his brothers were serving. There, too, he begged for a place, but all the answer he got was that they had nothing to put him to, for they'd just got two new serving men. But as he begged so prettily, at last he got leave to be with a coachman, and to learn how to groom and handle horses. That he was very willing to do, for he was fond of horses, and he was both quick and clever, so that he soon learnt how to bed and rub them down, and it was not long before everyone in the King's Grange was fond of him. But every hour he had to himself was up in the loft he used as a bedroom, looking at the picture, 
Freud hung it up on a corner to Hayloft. As for his brothers, they were dull and lazy, and so they often got beaten for their laziness. And when they saw that the ash lad was doing better than they, they got jealous of him and told the coachman that he prayed to a picture every night and not to the Lord as was fitting. Now, even though the coachman thought well of the lad, it wasn't long before he told the king what he had heard. But the king only swore and snapped at him, for he had grown very, very sad and sorrowful since his daughters had been carried off by trolls. But they so dinned it into the king's ears, so that at last he must and would know what it was that the lad did. But when he went up into the hayloft and set his eyes on the picture, he saw it was his own youngest daughter who was painted on it. But when the brothers of the ash lad heard that, they were ready with an answer and said to the coachman, If our brother only would, he has said he could get the king's daughters back. You might fancy it was not long before the coachman went to the king with this story. When the king heard it, he called for Ashlad and said, Your brothers say you can bring back my daughter again, and now you must do it. The Ashlad answered that he had never known it was the king's daughter till the king said so himself, and if he could free her and fetch her, he'd be sure to do his best. But two days he needed to think it over and fit himself up, and this was given to him. So he took the grey ball of wool and threw it down on the road. And it rolled, and it rolled before him, and he followed it till he came to the old hag from whom he had got it. Here he asked what he must do, and she said he must take with him the old musket, and three hundred crates full of spikes and horseshoe nails, and three hundred barrels of barley, and three hundred barrels of groats, and three hundred butchered pigs, and three hundred ox carcasses, and then he was to roll the ball of wool before him until he met a raven, and a baby trot, and then he would be all right, for they were both of her kin. So the lad did as she bade him. He went right onto the king's grange, took his old gun with him, and he asked the king for spikes and beef and pork and grain and horses and men and carts to carry them in. The king thought this was quite a good deal to ask for, but if he'd only get his daughter back, he might have whatever he chose, even if that was half of his kingdom. So, when the lad had fitted himself out, he rolled the ball of wool before him again, and he hadn't gone many days before he came to a high hill, and there sat a raven up a fir tree. So the ash lad went on until he came close under the tree, and then he began to aim and point at the raven with his gun. No, 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 cried the raven. Don't shoot me, don't shoot me, and I'll help you. Well, said the young man, I've never heard of anyone who boasted he'd eaten roast raven, and since you're so eager to save your life, I may as well just spare it. So he threw down his gun, and the raven came flying down to him and said, Here, up on this fell, there is a baby troll walking up and down, for he has lost his way, and he can't get down again. I will help you up and then you can lead him home, and ask a boon, which will stand you in good stead. When you get to the troll's house, he will offer you all the grandest things he has, but you should not heed them a pin. Mind you take nothing else but the little grey donkey, which stands behind the stable door. Then the raven took the ash lad on his back, and flew up on the hill with him, and put him up there. When he got about on it a bit, he heard the baby troll howling and whining, because it couldn't get down again. So the lad talked kindly to it, and they got the best friends and be the best friends in the world, and he said he would help it down and guide it to the old troll's house, so that it wouldn't lose itself on the way back. Then they went to the raven, he took them both on his back, and carried them off to the hill troll's house. And when the old troll saw his baby, he was so glad. He was beside himself, and he told Ashlad he might come indoors and take whatever he chose, because he had freed his child. He offered him both gold and silver and all that was rare and costly, but the lad said, He'd rather have a horse than anything else. Yes, he should have a horse, the troll said, and off they went to the stable. It was full of the grandest horses you've ever seen. Their coats shone like the sun and the moon. But the ash lad, when he set his eyes on the little grey donkey, said that that was a much better size for him. All the other horses were too big for him. 
I'll take that one. It'll suit me to a T. And if I fall off, I'll be no further than, further than the ground than I am. The old troll did not at all like to part with his donkey, but as he'd given his word, he had to stand by it. So the boy got the donkey and saddle and bridle and all that belonged to it, and then he set off. They travelled through wood and field and over fells and wide wastes. And when they'd gone further than far, the donkey asked the ash lad if he saw anything. No, I can only see a hill, which looks blue in the distance, said the ash lad. Oh, said the donkey, that hill we have to pass through. All very fine, I dare say, said the ash lad, for he didn't believe a word of it. So, when they got close to the hill, a unicorn came tearing out along them, just as if he was going to eat them all up alive. I almost think I'm now afraid, said the ash lad. Oh, said the donkey, don't say so. Just throw it a score or so of ox carcasses and beg it to bore a hole and break away for us through the hill. So the ash lad did as he was told. When the unicorn had eaten his fill, they said they would give him a score or two of pig's carcasses if he'd go before them and bore a hole in the hill so that they might get through it. When the unicorn heard that, he set to work and bored the hole and broke away so fast that it had hard work to keep up with him. And when he'd done his work, they threw him two score of the pig's. When they got one out of the way, they travelled far away until they get passed through woods and fields and across fells and wide wastes. Do you see anything now? asked the donkey. Nope, nothing but bare sky and wild fells, said the ash lad. So they travelled on farther and farther than far, and the higher up they came, the fell got smoother and flatter, so now they could see farther about. Do you see anything now? said the donkey. Yeah, I see something far, far away, said the ash lad, and it gleams and it twinkles like a little star. It's not so very little for all that, said the donkey. And when they'd gone on farther and farther than far again, the donkey asked, Do you see anything now? Yes, said the ash lad. I see something a long way off that shines like a moon. It's no moon, said the donkey, but the silver castle we are bound for. Now when we get there, you will see three dragons lying on the watch before the gate. They haven't been woken for hundreds of years, and so the moss has grown over their eyes. As they approached, outside the lake, lake gate lay the dragons, I almost think I'll be afraid of them, said the ash lad. Oh, don't say that, said the donkey. You've only got to wake up the youngest. Throw it a score or so of ox carcasses and swine, and then it will talk to the others, and so you'll get into the castle. So on they travelled far and farther, then far again, before they came up to the castle. But when they reached it, it was both grand and great, and everything they saw was cast in silver, and outside the gate lay the dragons, and blocked up the way so no one could get in. But they had a nice easy time of it, and had not been much troubled in their watch, for they were so overgrown with moss, that no one could tell what they were made of, and at their sides underwood was springing up between the tufts of moss. So when the ash lad woke up the youngest of them, and it began to rub its eyes and clear the moss out of them. But when the dragon saw there were folk there, he came at them with his big, wide mouth agape. But when the lad stood ready, and tossed into it the carcasses of ox, and swung after them salted swine, till the dragon had got his fill, and grew a little more sensible to talk to you. No one's really sensible when they're hungry. Then the lad begged he would wake up his fellow dragons and ask them to be so good as to get out of the way so that he might get into the castle. But the dragon neither would nor dared to do that at first, for he said they hadn't been awake or tasted anything for hundreds of years. He was afraid he should go raving mad and swallow up everything, alive or dead. But the ash lad said there was no need to fear that. They could leave behind them a hundred carcasses of ox and a hundred salt swine and go a little way off, and then the dragons would have time to eat their fill and to come to themselves before the others came back to the castle. The dragon was ready to do that, and so they did it. But before the dragons were well awake and got the moss rubbed off their eyes, they went about roaring and raving, writhing and rending at anything alive or dead, so that the youngest dragon had enough to do to shield himself from them till they'd snuffed up the smell of flesh. Then they swallowed down the whole oxen and swine and ate and ate and ate until they were full. 
and after that they were just as tame and buxom as the youngest, and they let the ash lad pass between them into the castle. When he got inside, it was all so grand, he had never thought anything could be so good anywhere. But there was not a soul in it, for he went from room to room, and opened all the doors, but he could see no one. Well, at last he peeked through a door that led to a bedroom, which he had not seen before, and in there sat a princess, spinning, and she was so glad and happy when she saw him. No, no, she cried. Can it be? Someone's dared to come hither? But it'll be best for you to be off again, or the troll might kill you, for you must know a troll lives here with three heads. But the Ashdad said he wouldn't go, even if he had seven heads. When the princess heard that, she said she wished he would try and see if he could brandish the great rusty sword that hung behind the door. No, he couldn't brandish it. He could barely lift it. Ah, said the princess, if you can't do that, you must take a drink of that flask yonder that hangs by the side of the sword, for that's what the troll does when he goes out to use it. So the ash lad took two or three drinks, and then he could brandish that sword as though it were a rolling pin. Then, just came then, the troll, so that the wind sung after him. What's that? he screeched. What smell of Christian blood there is in here? I know there is, said the ash lad, but you needn't blow and snort so at it. You won't suffer long from that smell. And, in a trice, he cut off all of his heads. The princess was so glad, just as she had got something so good. For a little while she was heavy-hearted, for she pined for her sister, who had been stolen by a troll with six heads, and lived in a golden castle three hundred miles on this side of the world's end. The ash lad thought that wasn't so very bad, for he could go and fetch both the princess and the castle. So he took the sword and the flask and got on the donkey and bade the dragons follow him and carry the meat and grain and nails which he had brought with him. So when they'd been a while on the way and had travelled far, far away over land and strand, the donkey said, Do you see anything? I don't see anything, cried the ash lad, but land and water and bare sky and high crags. So they went on far and farther than far, and then the donkey said again, Do you see anything now? I see something a long way off that shines like a little star. It'll be big enough by and by, said the donkey. When they'd gone a good bit still, the donkey asked, Do you see anything now? Now I see it shining like a moon, said the lad. Aye, aye, said the donkey, and on they went. So when they'd gone far and far and farther than far, away over land and strand and hill and heath, the donkey asked, Do you see anything now? Now, I think, said the ash lad, it shines most like the sun. Aye, said the donkey, that's the golden castle for which we are bound. But outside it lives a worm, which stops the way and keeps watch and ward. I think I shall be afraid of it, said the ash lad. Oh, don't say so, said the donkey. We must spread over it heaps of boughs and lay between them layers of horse spikes, spikes, horseshoe spikes and nails. Set fire to them all and so we shall be rid of it. So after a long, long time they came up where the castle hung in the air, but the worm lay underneath it and stopped the way. So the lad gave the dragons a good meal of ox carcasses and salted swine that they might help him. And they spread over the worm heaps of boughs and wood, and laid between them layers of nails and spikes, till they used up three hundred chests. And when it was all done, they set fire to the pile, and burned up the worm alive in a fire at white heat. And when they'd done with him, one dragon flew under the castle and lifted it up, and the two others went up high, high into the air, unloosed the links and hooks by which it hung, and they lowered it down and set it on the ground. And when that was done, the ash lad went inside, and there it was, grander far than the silver castle but he could see no folk till he came to the innermost room, and there lay a princess on a bed of gold. She slept so soundly, as though she were dead, but she was not, though he was not able to wake her up, for her face was red and white as milk and blood, and just as the ash lad stood there gazing at her, back came the trolls herring along, and as soon as he'd put his first head through the door, he screamed out, Who? 
What a smell of Christian blood there is in here. Maybe, said the ash lad, but you've got no need to smell and snort about that. You shan't suffer long from it. And with that, he cut off all his heads, as though they stood in a kale stall. So, the dragons took the golden castle on their backs and went home with it. I fancy they were not long on the way, and set it down side by side with the silver castle, so that it shone both far and wide. Now, when the princess of the silver castle came to her window in the morning and caught sight of it, she was so glad that she sprang over to the golden castle at once. But when she saw her sister lying there and sleeping as though she were dead, she said to the ash lad that it would never get life into her before they found the water of life and death, and that it stood in two wells on either side of a golden castle which hung in the air nine hundred miles beyond the world's end and where the third sister dwelt. Well, the ash lad thought there was no help for it. He must go and fetch it, and was not long before he was on his way, so he travelled far and farther than far, through many realms across wood and field, over fell and firth, along hill and heath, and at last he got to the world's end, and after that he travelled far, far over crags and wastes and high rocks. Do you see anything? asked the donkey one day. I see nothing but heaven and earth, said the lad. Do you see anything now? asked the donkey again when some days were past. Hmm, said the ash lad. Now I see something that glimmers very high up, far, far away, like a little star. It's not so little for all that, said the donkey. And when they travelled on a while, the donkey asked again, Do you see anything now? Yes, said the ash lad. Now it shines like the sun. That's whither we are bound, said the donkey. It's a golden castle that hangs up in the air. And there lives a princess who has been stolen by a troll with nine heads. But all but the wild beasts around the world lie on watch and stop the way thither. Ooh, said the ash lad. I almost think I'm afraid of them. Don't say so, said the donkey. And he told him there was no danger. If he'd only make up his mind not to linger there, but to set off on his way back as soon as he had filled his flask with the water, for there was no going thither and during one hour in the day, and that began at high noon. But if he were not man enough to be ready in time and get away, the beasts would tear him into a thousand pieces. Well, said the ash lad, he'd be sure to do that. He'd not think of staying too long. At the stroke of twelve, they reached the castle, and there lay all the wild and savage beasts that ever were, as if it were a fence between the gate and on the other side of the way, but they all slumbered like stocks and stones, and there wasn't one of them that so much as lifted a paw. So the ash lad passed between them, and took good heed not to tread on their toes or the tips of their tails, and he filled his flask with the waters of life and death, and while he did that he looked up at the castle, which is as though it were cast in pure gold. It was the grandest he had ever seen, and he thought it would be grander still inside than out. Stuff, thought the ash lad, I've got time enough, I can always look about me in half an hour, and so he opened the, hour, the door and went in. Well, inside it was grander than grand itself, and as he went from one gorgeous room into another, it was all as if it were made of gold and pearls, and everything that was costliest in the world. There were no people, though, and at last he came to a bedroom where there lay another princess on a bed of gold, just as though she were dead too. But she was as grand as the grandest queen, and as red and white as blood on snow, and so lovely. He'd never seen anything as lovely but her picture, for it was she that was painted on his. Then the ash lad forgot both the water he was to fetch, and the wild beast, and the castle, and everything, and could only gaze at the princess, and he thought he'd never have his fill of looking at her. But all the while she slept as though she were dead, and he was not able to wake her up. So, when it came toward the evening, the troll came tearing along so that the wind sung after him, and he rattled and slammed the gates and doors till the whole castle rang again. Ha! Huh, what a strong smell of Christian blood there is in here, and stuck his first head inside the door and snuffed up the air. I dare say there is, said the ash lad. 
but you've got no need to puff and blow as though you're about to burst. It won't vex you for long. And as he said that, he cut off all his nine heads. But when he'd done that, he got so weary, he couldn't keep his eyes open. So he laid him down on the bed by the side of the princess. And all the while, she slept both night and day, as though she would never wake again. Only at midnight, she woke up. And then she told him that he had set her free, but she must stay there for another three years. And if she didn't come home to him, then he must just come and fetch her. It didn't take them long to fall in love. When the clock began to go towards one next day, the ash lad woke for the first time again, and the first thing he heard was a donkey braying and screaming and making a stir, and he thought he'd get up and set off home. But before he went, he cut a breath out of the princess's skirt and took it away with him. And however it was, he had loitered so long that the beast began to wake and stir, and by the time he'd mounted his donkey, they stood in a ring around him, so he thought he had rather a ghastly look. But the donkey said he must sprinkle on them a few drops of the water of death, and he did so, and in a trice they all fell headlong on the spot, and never stirred a limb more. As they were on their way home, the donkey said to the ash lad, Now, when you come to honour and glory, see that you don't forget me, and all I've done for you, so I shall be broken need for hunger. No, no, that should never be, said the lad. So, when he got home to the princess with the water of life, he sprinkled a few drops over her sister and woke her up, and then there was such great joy, and they were so happy. Then they travelled home to the king, and he too was glad and joyful, because he got at least two of his daughters back. But he did go about longing and longing that the three years might pass and his youngest daughter would come home. As for the ash lad who had brought them back, the king made him a mighty man so that he was the first in the land after the king himself. But there were many who were jealous that he should have grown to be such a man of mark and one of them was Ritter Red who they did say wished to have the eldest princess and he got her to sprinkle over the ash lad a little of the water of death so that he swooned and lay as dead. So that when the three years were over, and a bit of the force was gone, they came sailing up a strange ship of war, and on board was the third sister, and with her she had a boy, three years old. She sent word up to the king's grange, and said she would not set her foot on land until they had sent him, who had been in the golden castle, and set her free. So they sent down one of the highest men about court, the master of ceremonies himself, and when he came on board the princess's ship, he took off his hat, and bowed, and scraped, and bent himself before her. Can that be your father, my son, said the princess to her boy, who was playing with a golden apple. No, said the child, my father doesn't crawl about like a cheese mite. So they sent another of the same stamp, and this time it was Ritter Ret. But it fared no better with him than with the first one, and the princess sent word by him, if they didn't make haste and send the right one, it should go ill with them. When they heard that, they were forced to wake up the ash lad with the water of life, and so he went down to the ship to the princess, but he didn't make too low a bow, I should think. He only nodded his head and brought out the breadth he had cut of the skirt of the princess in the golden castle. That's my father, that's my father, bawled out the boy and gave him the golden apple he was playing with. Then there was great joy and mirth all over the realm and the old king was the gladdest of them all because he had got his darling back again. But when what Ritter Red and the prin- eldest princess had done to the Ashlad came out, the king asked to have them both roll down a hill, each in a cask full of spikes and nails. But the Ashlad and the youngest princess begged hard for them, so they got off with life. Now, it happened one day, as they were about to begin the bridal feast, that they stood looking out of the window, and it was towards spring, just when they are turning out the horses and cows after winter, and the last that came out of the stable was the donkey. But it was so starved that it came out of the stable door on its knees. Then the Ashland was cut to the heart, because he had forgotten it, and he went down and did not know how to make it up to the poor beast. But the donkey said the best thing he could do was cut his head off, 
that he was very loath to do, but the donkey begged and begged so he had to yield, and did at last. And as soon as ever his head fell in the yard, it was all over with a shape which had been thrown over him by witchcraft, and there stood the handsomest prince anyone cared to see. He got the middle princess as a wife. She was very happy with him, and they fell to keeping the bridal feast, so that it was heard and talked of over seven kingdoms. Then they built themselves houses, and stitched themselves shoes, and had so many babies, they reached up to the moon. And that is the end of my tale. And I hope it pleased you, for it had no other purpose. So, what did you think? I hope it was magical enough for you. We've definitely moved countries after spending some time in Italy to Norway. But you might have noticed there's still a touch of the Cinderella's hanging around, although we have a male protagonist now. The Ash Lad could be Cinderella's brother. He's considered only fit for the meanest task like turning the fire. Indeed, in this story, we never learn his actual name. He has two mean and jealous older brothers, and he overcomes many odds to reach happy ending. He's only missing the stepmother, and he gets the princess rather than the prince. The Ashland is a much-loved character in Norwegian folk and fairy tales, overcoming the odds with cleverness and trickery and assistance of various characters to demonstrate the moral that hard work, cleverness and courage are all you need to do well in life. He outwits older brothers, kings who don't want to fulfil their promises, and trolls and other magical creatures. If you want to listen to a tale where the king is at, you could go back and listen to my earlier episode of Jesper and the Hares. It's still one of my favourites, and the flapjack recipe is frankly out of this world. So, let's come back to this story. You could definitely argue that it's ATU tale type 510B Cinderella. Marianne Ralph Cox certainly thinks so, and she has a whole chapter with 22 examples with a male hero, including a Norwegian one called Kari Trestek, which shares at least four traits with our tale of the ill-treated hero, helpful animal, slaying of the helpful animal, and happy marriage. There's also an argument for ATU 301, the three stolen princesses. We could also throw in a reference to Thompson's motive index of folk literature, this is perhaps an example of B300 to B349, helpful animal. The trolls in this story are a common occurrence in Norse tales. The noun troll or troll has a variety of meeting, meanings, namely fiend, demon and giant, and comes from a proto-genomic word, trollen, of unknown origin. Most people, however, agree that troll is usually a catch-all term for mischievous creatures. Ashlad is known for his ability to outwit these often foolish creatures, even if their size makes them terrifying. If you want to see some wonderful drawings of trolls, then look up the John Bauer illustrations or the Kay Nielsen illustrations from East of the Sun, West of the Moon, which also has a gorgeous depiction of other mythical creatures. Sadly, there are less beautiful illustrations in Tales from the Fjell that this story comes from. I'd also like to look at the unicorn in this story. I've long been very loud in my opinions that unicorns are not delicate, mystical creatures, but horses with a big sword on the end of their nose, to quote Terry Pratchett. Well, sort of quote him. Anyone who has had to deal with a large angry horse should be terrified that there might be a virgin that could stab you to the heart rather than just trample you or kick you with resulting possible bone breaks or crush injuries. I love horses but they are still wild creatures underneath and also sometimes not very bright. Imagine that with a horn that could keep a pierced bone. I feel the fact that this unicorn eats pig and ox carcasses and would happily have eaten our hero proves my point somewhat. We must be moving along, as we haven't even started talking about the magic sword, and the strength potion, or dragons, or even the magic ball of thread. The dragons are very useful for transporting items belonging to the hero, and for relocating mobile casks, 
A strength potion needed for the bearer to wield the magic sword appears in the three princesses in the Blue Mountain as well, and is used in the same way to defeat trolls with many heads. We don't have space here to properly examine the ball of thread metaphor in the story, but expressions surrounding thread in fairy tale and folktale are fascinating. Have you ever considered that we spin a yarn or weave spells through creating something we value from barely a wisp of nothing? The thread here is a pathway or a line to follow for our hero. He's following the steps of ancient heroes like Theseus, who followed the thread out of the labyrinth in the Minotaur. We could also consider the ancient Greek fates, three female deities who determine the fates of humanity. One spins the thread, one determines the length, and one cuts the thread. As it was a hag who provided our hero with a grey thread. One of the things that makes this a Norwegian tale is the realistic narrative style, no matter how fantastical the story subject is. The other thing which is characteristic is that the king resembles a Norwegian landowner rather than an all-powerful monarch of legend with lands that never end. The original illustrations of the tales were also a bit more down-to-earth, adding a touch of Norwegian realism. One thing, however, that's more generalised is if you treat people with good manners and are generous with your food, even if you have little, you will almost certainly be rewarded. So, shall we consider the food? The older brothers are said to eat, eat cheese, meat and bread, and the ash lad only gets scraps or crumbs. I'm never going down the carcass route again after the gift of the magician, and we looked at grain in the legend of not many. So, it must be bread, meat and cheese, or rather, sandwiches. If this had been written after 1762 in England, it would have been sandwiches anyway. I'll get to that shortly. So, is there any folklore about sandwiches to ask? Well, unsurprisingly, there isn't much, when you consider how long sandwiches have existed as a concept, so that's understandable. This means I get to look at a couple of tenuous folklore connections, and you know how much I enjoy that. The first is that hawthorn trees used to be known, and still are in some parts, as bread and cheese, because it was thought the young leaves tasted of bread and cheese. I didn't realise that until last week, when someone told me. I think it was probably easier to convince yourself of that if you were in time of want or famine, but this is what the colliers at Kingswood near Bristol in 1873 resorted to as they marched on Bristol to protest about the export of wheat from the port. Hawthorne law is fascinating, and I could probably write a blog just about that. So I'm going to take a look at the folklore of bread, which is slightly less tenuous linked to sandwich. The folklore of bread is a very deep theme to mine, so I thought we'd just concentrate on a few superstitions of the British Isles. Firstly, as it's nearly Good Friday, a reminder that bread or cakes that are baked on Good Friday are supposed to never stale or mould, and that a hot cross bun allowed to harden and hidden in the eaves of the house will protect the house from fire. Just make sure it's not baked on Good Friday or you'll be waiting ages. I will just say here though that fire protection does sound lovely. I'd probably still make sure the smoke detectors had batteries, you know, just in case. This one isn't Good Friday specific, but it was believed in Wales that when you read an excellent bread rising day, it meant that you were loved and that love can make even the coldest life rise with joy. Isn't that wonderful? In Scotland, it's said that you shouldn't sing while making bread because you will spend as long crying later as you did singing while making the dough. The weirdest and slightly bawdiest superstition that I can find was reported by John Aubrey in 1686. This was a ritual to attract a man by making cockle bread. He states, Young wenches have a wanton sport, which they call moulding of cockle bread. This, they get up upon a table board and then gather at their knees and their coats with their hands as high as they can, and they wobble to and fro with their buttocks, as if they were kneading dough with their asses. and they say these words, My dame is sick and gone to bed, and I'll go mould my cockle bread. 
Apparently, this was based on a charm from earlier times, when the dough was literally moulded by those more delicate parts and served to the one they hoped would then desire them. I bet using your hands doesn't seem the messiest option now, does it? We'll move on more to sandwiches and their history. Although the finest piece of folklore does seem to be that the Earl of Sandwich invented the sandwich so he didn't have to pause in his gambling. It's generally agreed that the Earl of Sandwich didn't do a whole lot of nights of gambling, being quite poor as aristocrats grow. Although he did like the odd wager, it is more likely that it was during his exceptional busy days as Lord of the Admiralty that he needed something to eat at his desk. Is it folklore that he invented the sandwich? It appears not. Many greater researchers have gone ahead of me on this, and no one can find a recipe for a sandwich before 1773. And that's in the lady's assistant for regulating and supplying her table by Mrs Charlotte Mason. The first official use of the word was in 1762, according to the OED, but the first story about how it was invented in 1765 in a travel guide, Grossley's Tour to London. A lot of doubt has been cast on the gambling story, as I mentioned, but not on the actual sandwich itself. We should consider sandwich history, and in order to do that, I think we need to define exactly what a sandwich is. My opinion, mostly anyway, is shared by the wonderful food writer B. Wilson, so I feel we can use her definition from her book Sandwich, A Global History. Two or more slices of bread, or the equivalent in rolls, flatbread or other baked goods, uses a structure to contain a filling of some other food, whether hot or cold, to make a meal, such that no utensils are necessary. This means that open sandwiches are not sandwiches. If there's no top slice in the bread, the items laid on the bread are not toppings, are toppings rather, not fillings. That would include the Dutch Belga de Brugge, which no less person than Simon Charmé assists as a forerunner of the sandwich. But as an open sandwich, it isn't a sandwich. That also goes for things that come between things that aren't bread or baked goods. If you put some ham between two slices of lettuce, that is equally not a sandwich. And you might like it and you might enjoy it, but it's not a sandwich. It's possible to consider the Passover sandwich, the Karek or Hillel sandwich, from the first century BC as the first sandwich. According to the Haggadah, the Jewish religion text, religious text setting out the rules for the Seder meal, Hillel took the prescriptions of Exodus and Numbers and turned them into a living ritual. This is what Hillel did when the temple existed. He enwrapped the Paschal lamb, the matzo and the bitter herbs to eat them as one. Matzos then were more like flatbreads rather than the crisp um, flatbreads we have today. So essentially, this is a lamb and herd flatbread. However, this type of sandwich, along with falafel stuffed pitters and other similar foods, are not culturally related to the European sandwich, so it isn't really helpful for this specific search. Although it probably, in fact, almost definitely is the first sandwich. There have been a lot of people who insist that the medieval trencher was the first form of sandwich. But really, it was hard bread which soaked up meat juices, which were often given to servants to eat. I don't think many people would think that gravy-soaked bread sliced was a sandwich. There's a really well-researched article from 2004 by Mark Morton, where he suggests that the uses of bread and cheese and bread and meat were what people called a sandwich. This does appear in plays and writings pre-1772. He uses as his evidence that because bread always comes first, that suggests they were a combination. The problem is that people didn't necessarily eat them in a sandwich formation. They could have eaten bread then cheese, or cheese then bread, or just cheese on bread with no top slice. Again, not a sandwich. The same goes for meat. If we use our definition above, we could consider that stuffed loaves are a sort of sandwich. 
I have found excellent early 18th century recipes for lobster loaves, oyster loaves and mushroom loaves. The mushroom loaf I would make today even. They weren't eaten in the same way though and were considered a side dish for a main meal. In fact, that's a listed serving suggestion. So, we're back to the Earl of Sandwich. He clearly didn't invent eating bread or meat between two slices of bread. Sorry, cheese or meat between two slices of bread. But what he did was order it already in that format. That is the big difference, and he is the first person to do that as far as we can tell. In the following centuries, to the modern day, the fortunes of the sandwich have risen and fallen. They have been stuffed full of extravagant materials and served at balls. Served in their original format of beef between bread and coffee houses of London, made the lives of people who have to make cricket teas miserable and been the ultimate comfort food at every British occasion from christenings to funerals, even if the only comfort was in their avoidance. Grace Dent wrote a wonderful article in The Guardian about the place of sandwiches in British grief, which you can find in further reading via the show notes. It's wonderful and it will make you cry. They have been our choice of food at our office desk since M&S launched the package sandwich in 1980. I'm not snobby about package sandwiches, sometimes they're exactly what you need, but I do prefer my own. I think that's because I like a simple sandwich with the best ingredients of its kind, even if those are fairly cheap ones. I used to get ham from a local butcher that made his own. It was sensational and it melted in your mouth. The extremely thin slices just need to be piled up with a touch of mustard and mayo between fresh whole grain bread. Mayo or butter is another contentious sandwich issue. I personally can't have both on a sandwich. It's either or for me. I do appreciate that as a personal thing. I prefer mayo for nearly all sandwiches, but that's probably because my butter is always too cold and it tears the bread. Mayo is easier. I'm also going to invite further controversy and say the Polish mayo is the best. It just is. So, I imagine you now know you're getting a sandwich recipe. I had to decide between three, and it basically came down to the availability of ingredients for people outside of this area. Though if you're ever visiting the black country, I'd still recommend them trying them out. My discarded sandwiches were a pub cheese and onion cob. A cob is a white roll which has a crispy outside and a soft middle. A pub cheese and onion cob, or corned beef cob if you're more adventurous, is at its best having sat on a cling-filmed plate for a couple of hours. The cheese must be so sharp it makes the roof of your mouth itch and the onion should be strong enough to strip your palate. The outside of the cob will now be chewy rather than crisp and it's a perfect snack after a couple of bites along with some scratchings. The other discarded sandwich uses the same bread, the cob, but it must be buttered and filled with orange chip. These are a black country specialty, a very thin batter that coats the chips on the outside so it's crispy on the outside and a fluffy in the inside. The chips should have been salted and vinegared extravagantly and if they can be purchased from a backstreet chip shop in Tipton and eaten in my nan's kitchen, so much the better. But that's not essential. It's a good job, I suppose, because neither the shop or the house still exist. The winning sandwich candidate is a tomato sandwich. The bread must be good and I prefer whole grain, but you can choose your own preference. Then needs to be toasted until it's fairly crunchy. The tomatoes must be really good. There's no hiding here, so that's essential. They need to smell of tomato, which is possible even with a supermarket one, but not outside of the summer, or here at least. The mayo must also be excellent, but can still be shop-bought. The only other ingredients are freshly ground black pepper and flaky sea salt. If you live in the UK, I'd either get Isle of White tomatoes from the tomato store website, or wait a couple of months. It's definitely worth waiting for. And that's the end of this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. 
if you have and you have a spare moment to leave a review or even just a rating wherever you get the podcasts I'd really appreciate it apparently it really helps for other people to find the podcast if you'd like to get in touch with me about anything you've heard on the podcast I'm on twitter at fairytalesfood also instagram with the same name if that's more your thing I hope you'll be back next time and thanks for listening to this episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales.